Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. The weekend is upon us, and Walters is a great spot to gather for brunch from chicken and waffles to Walters breakfast tacos. Walters' menu has something for everyone. On top of that, for only $20, enjoy bottomless drinks, including mimosas, Bloody Marys, Trulies, and old-time lagers. Make your reservation at waltersdc.com today. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Here's the pitch. Swinging a ground ball toward the hole off the glove of the diving Hayes and out in the left field. It's a base hit for Cruz. In from third to score is Escobar. And just like last night, the Nationals out to a 3-0 lead. Cruz is 2-for-2. Two two. He's driven in two runs. Here's the pitch to Bell. Swinging a ground ball, vacant shortstop hole for a base hit. Escobar scores. Soto will score without a throw. Cruz holds it second. And Josh Bell for the second time tonight. Grounds one through the vacant shortstop position. And this time he drives in two. It's the Nationals seven and Pittsburgh two. Castillo does not run in the pitch. Swing and a miss and a curveball at 71 miles an hour. A speedball strikes out Tucker. And a curly W is in the books in Pittsburgh. And welcome to Nats Chat for Saturday, April 16th, 2022, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is in Pittsburgh. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, Friday was Jackie Robinson Day in Major League Baseball. Friday also was Good Friday. Friday also was the beginning of Passover. A lot was happening on Friday, but also happening on Friday was a Nationals win, a 7-2 win at the Pirates in Game 2 of a four-game series. That's now our 4-5 and five on the season. Eric Fetty was solid for a second time in as many starts this season. The Nats bullpen, which ended up being like a mixture of the A and B bullpens, was excellent on Friday evening. Uh, the Nats continued to hit a bunch of singles, but the Nats scored seven runs. The Nats even had their first stolen base of the season. Took a while, but we got it. And Mark, here we are. Nats are 4-2 and two since their 0-3 start. And like we've seen now, like there's a formula here. When they follow the formula, they win. When their starter gives them five innings, they're now 4-0. When the starter doesn't get to five innings, they're 0-5. So if that isn't the obvious line of demarcation that tells you what the outcome of the game is going to be, there it is for you. Fetty wasn't great, but he did what he needed to do. He finished strong, got it to the bullpen. And on this night, it's a close game in the sixth, so you go to Sean Doolittle, who again was fantastic. But then, because the offense kept tacking on, it allowed Davey to pass over the rest of the A bullpen 
and use Austin Voth and Paolo Espino to close it out. And the rest of those guys could just sit back and relax in a comfortable reclined position in the bullpen for the rest of the night. Yeah, I mean, it would have been a Shonda if Davey had to go start using his A relievers in this game with the Nats putting up the seven runs. So it was nice to see that. I mean, you know, we talk so often about A bullpens, B bullpens. The fact of the matter is you're allowed to mix the two. Like the two sets of relievers are allowed to intermingle. And so if what seems like an A bullpen game becomes a B bullpen game, that's a good thing. And that is, in fact, what happened on Friday night. Yeah, and to that, give credit to Austin Voth because we don't always know that it's going to be a clean inning for him. And he had two very clean innings on 21 pitches. And then our boy Paolo Espino closed it out. But yeah, you're right. I mean, you do need to be able to trust some of these guys with a lead and not always have to count on the same ones when you're ahead. And what this also does is now, you know, Saturday night, if they're in a good position again, you have a bunch of available top relievers who could pitch the late innings for you. I mean, the way it's worked so far, they haven't had a lot of back-to-back games where they've needed, you know, Rainey, Finnegan, Doolittle. And now because they didn't have to use them in this one, they are in a position to now come back to them if they're able to, you know, be ahead late on Saturday night. It all started with Fetty on Friday night. And we all get it that the standard for Nats starting pitching this season is not sky high. But the truth is, Eric Fetty has been the Nats' best starting pitcher so far this season. He gives you two runs in five innings, six strikeouts. He only allowed four hits, a double and three singles. He issued two walks. You know, he wasn't pitch efficient. He threw 96 pitches over the five innings. I was thinking about this, though. I mean, here we are now nine games into the Nats season, and the standard clearly is if you get five innings from the starting pitcher, that's a good thing. When do you think we will finally see a Nats starter get to six innings? Like, do you think it won't be until May? What are we looking at? I was thinking about this last night after we taped the show. If I said an over-under on times this season that a Nats starting pitcher goes at least six innings, let's say I set the over-under of 50, let's say, right? So less than a third of the season. Would you go over or under? Because honestly, right now, I think I might go under. And that's crazy to say that. But no one has even sniffed six innings so far. And right now, we're all just kind of doing cartwheels over anyone who can last for five innings. It's just remarkable to me how our perception of things has changed with the Nats starting pitching. I think it was, yeah, Josh Rogers reached the sixth, but only got one out before he came out. And he's the only one to even touch the sixth inning. It's a great question. I hadn't considered it like that. At first, I was going to say, well, obviously more than 50 times, but maybe not both because of who they're putting out there, but it's also kind of the new philosophy anyways in baseball. You just don't see that many starters going deep in games. So would it shock me if they only got it about 50 times? I mean, yeah, given the lack of veterans and guys, you know, with track records that they have in the rotation, that it's entirely possible. What I thought was interesting here is that Davey was actually kind of critical of Fetty after this one. Fetty struggled, you know, in inning there uh, just by the walks. Because of the high pitch count early in the game that sort of left it where he was never going to be able to go beyond five. He thought, especially with a 3 nothing lead, go after them more. He said, what's your best pitch? It's a cutter. Don't throw the whole kitchen sink at them early in the game. Get ahead in the count with your best pitch. Try to get some quick outs. And now maybe you can get to the sixth inning with your total under 100. And, you know, I think that's showing that he expects a little more from someone who's now been in the big leagues for a while and 
For better or worse, Fetty is one of their more established starters at this point. Davey's trying to set the bar a little higher for him. And I think Eric knows that too. And I think he feels like next time around, certainly two times from now, you know, he's had enough now to build his arm up. I mean, 96 pitches, that's like the equivalent of your last spring training start probably. So I think he would tell you that next time out or at least two times out from now, he should be consistently reaching the sixth inning and topping 100 pitches. The problem inning for Fetty on Friday night was that bottom of the second. He gave up two runs in that inning, gave up a leadoff full count, opposite field single to Yoshi Sutsugo to left center, issued a six-pitch walk of Ben Gamble, issued a two-out six-pitch walk of Andrew Knapp, who Fetty at one point had down 0-2. And then Fetty gave up a two-out bases-loaded two-run opposite field single to Hoy Park to shallow left on a 1-2 pitch. That single cut the Nats' lead to 3-2. I mean, you know, I think it's funny with Fetty because he isn't pitch efficient. He never really has been pitch efficient. And 96 pitches in five innings is way too many. But part of the reason for that were the six strikeouts. And we've discussed this, but he has become more of a strikeout pitcher over these last few seasons. I think it's tricky with pitchers because you want strikeouts, but you also recognize that strikeouts drive up pitch counts. So it's like you want to try to find that right balance of striking guys out, but you know, not throwing 100 pitches in five innings, that sort of a thing. So I'm not sure if you're Davey, if you would rather Fetty sacrifice some strikeouts for more pitch efficiency or not. But I do think that is part of what happened here. It's all a matter of perspective, though. For years in baseball, we've had this phrase of five and dive. And it's an insulting phrase. It's meant to say you can't last for more than five innings. And once you hit the five inning mark, that's it. You take a dive and you're done. I think this season with the Nats, if you can go five innings, that's a thumbs up. So to me, I look at Fetty, two runs in five innings. If you would have told me that going into this game on Friday night, I would have signed up for that. And he did give you that. Yeah, certainly. The standard has changed a lot. And, you know, some of that is the start of the season, again, like we've been talking about. I think you do raise the bar a little bit as we move forward and get deeper into the season. But right now, given the makeup of the bullpen, given where the starters are at, you will take five and dive as long as it's a a quality five is good. You know, they haven't had a true quality start yet by the strict definition of that term. But I'm calling this one a quality start as well as several that they've had here over the last week. If you're doing what you need to do to put your team in position to win, then you've done your job. But one thing I'll, I will say, and I think we brought this up the other night, you know, on May 1st, they have to reduce the roster from 28 to 26. And all of a sudden, instead of a 10-man bullpen, it's an eight-man bullpen. In turn, that is going to sort of force the starters to go a little deeper because you can't just say, we're going to use four guys tonight, four guys tomorrow night. Well, that's everybody. That's all you have. So I do think that puts some added stress either on the starters to get you through the sixth more, or you're going to have to have a couple of guys in your bullpen who can go multiple innings. Now, both did it on this night. We know Paolo Espino can do it, but how many do they have that consistently can do that? I'm not sure. So that might be an interesting question two weeks from now when they get to the roster reduction of how do they assemble their bullpen, knowing that they are going to have to ask for a little more out of them unless their starters can start going deeper. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to have to be on the pen because I don't know how you can look at this rotation and think all of a sudden multiple guys are going to consistently start giving you six innings. I mean, if it happens, great, but it's hard to look at the rotation and have great faith that that will be coming. But all things considered, Fetty put the Nats in position to win, and the Nats bullpen on Friday night was lights out. Three Nats relievers, Sean Doolittle, Austin Voth, and Paolo Espino combined for four scoreless innings, three of which were perfect innings. I mean, how about Doolittle so far? I know it's early. I know that the appearances aren't many, but a perfect bottom of the sixth on 14 pitches. 
11 of which were strikes. I love how Davey is using Doolittle. The inning doesn't matter. It's about the matchups, as we've discussed. And Doolittle, in every circumstance this season, has looked great so far. And then I think the surprise of the night was both. You know, he tosses that perfect bottom of the seventh on 11 pitches. You say, all right, probably done for the night, although who knows? Comes back out for the eighth, perfect bottom of the eighth with two strikeouts. So two perfect innings from Austin Voth. Like you said, you're never quite sure what we're going to get from him. He at times doesn't look good, but he can look good. And he, I guess that's what he does. He teases you. He's like seduces you into saying, well, geez, he can look so good. Why doesn't he like this all the time? But he, he sure looked great on Friday night. And then our guy, Paolo Espino, the secret weapon with a scoreless bottom of the ninth inning. You know, the Nats pen obviously did have some issues in game one of the series, especially Andres Machado and Patrick Murphy. But overall, man, since the 0-3 start, the bullpen for the most part has been a strength for this Nats team. Yeah, it has. The thing about Voth that was most impressive, those last two outs in the eighth, he struck out Brian Reynolds and Key Brian Hayes, their best hitters. So talk about finishing strong to give you those two solid innings. And then, like you said, in the sixth, why on this night was Sean Doolittle pitching the sixth when on all other nights he would pitch later in the game? Well, because of the matchups. We talked about this. You don't have to necessarily hold a guy for a late inning because that's his designated inning. The Pirates had their two big lefties up, Tsutsugo and Gamel, in the sixth. So Davey had his one and only lefty ready to go at that point. And I think that's a nice adaptation by the manager in how he is starting to set up the bullpen. And you can do that when you have multiple reliable relievers, as they seem to have right now. But Sean Doolittle, let's talk about this now. 12 batters faced this season, 12 batters retired, five strikeouts. He's thrown 40 pitches, 31 strikes. That's in four innings. That is as good as it gets. He looks like peak Sean Doolittle. Eric Fetty even said he thinks he might look better now than he did last time around because he's incorporating that breaking ball and throwing it really well. Remember, he was fastball all the time, maybe just the occasional breaking ball or changeup to keep them off balance. He's actually using that breaking ball now effectively. And, you know, it's four games. You don't want to get too excited here. You knock on wood and all that. But, boy, it is hard not to be impressed with this and think that we may be seeing a second coming of Sean Doolittle here, which is just an astounding thought given where he was a year ago. Sean Doolittle's average four-seam fastball velocity this season coming into Friday night per fan graphs was 94.1 miles per hour. His best since 2017. You think about that. His best in five years is what he's had so far this year. Now, we understand it's early. We'll see if the velocity diminishes as the season goes on. But when Doolittle really started declining with the Nats, I mean, the velocity was the thing. The velocity plummeted that he has figured out a way to get it back up is awesome. And I do think that that changes the Sean Doolittle conversation. Like, I think we all viewed him as aging reliever, not what he was at his peak. If you can get some decent production out of him, great. But if, in fact, he has somehow turned back the clock, maybe the Sean Doolittle of, say, 2017 can be a thing again. Like, maybe the guy who came here and really helped to stabilize that Nats bullpen in 2017 can all of a sudden be back here for the Nats in 2022. So the key is going to be how much does Davey have to use him? He's been able to space out his appearances right now. If they get to a point that he is pitching more consistently, that's when he sort of broke down, when he was the only guy and they had to use him almost every time they had a lead, often for multiple innings, and you saw the wear and tear of that. And, you know, it almost derailed his career as a result. So 
you would hope that they have enough depth now that they don't have to keep putting him out there that much. But you also, you know, if he's this good, you're going to want to start using him every opportunity you get. And so I think it's going to be a fine balance. And I'll be interested to see how that plays out. Is Davey able to keep it as a, you know, two or three times a week? Or does it become, hey, we really need you for four or even five times a week? And then if that is the case, how does his arm, how does his body react to that? You hope it doesn't break down again. But that would be the one area of concern. That's sort of like that last step he needs to get over. He's looking great right now. Let's see, does he hold up as the workload increases over time? Yeah, and as we approach that MLB trade deadline of August 2nd, so the Nats can get get something good for him. Nice night, Alan. You have to just throw that in again. The trade value is skyrocketing right now for Sean Doolittle. I love it. I love it. Do. Keep doing as you do. By the way, Sean Doolittle's career has turned around since appearing on the Nats Chat podcast. That is not a coincidence. The karma of the Nats Chat podcast has struck again with Sean Doolittle having success. So anybody else out there who needs to kind of turn things around, give us a call. We will happily put you on. Turn your whole life around. Hey, Victor Robles' agent called me today. He said, put Victor on the Nats Chat podcast. I said, uh, I'll see what I can do, all right? But we're very busy right now, so I can't promise you anything. Are you a law firm partner looking for a better situation for your practice and a blockbuster contract worthy of Juan Soto? If so, you should call Mason Kalfas of Zenith Legal in Washington, D.C. Works with law firms and lawyers on finding the perfect match. No platoons, just superstars. Some lawyers switch firms because of conflict. Some lawyers switch firms for a better platform for their practice. And some lawyers switch firms for more money. You need the Scott Boris of legal headhunters working for you, and that's Mason. Mason will work with you to find a better fit for your practice and ultimately the best deal for you and your entire team. Call him today at 202-486-3535 or check out his website, zenithlegal.com. This is an unprecedented time in the legal market, and many top firms are looking to expand. Call Mason today. Zenith Legal also works with associates and distinguishes itself on personal service. Zenith Legal doesn't just spam resumes out to law firms. Zenith Legal talks to the right people and gets your resume in front of the decision makers who matter. Whether you are a Rainmaker partner or a mid-level associate, give Mason Kalfas at Zenith Legal a call today to accelerate your career. Call today, 202-486-3535. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? 
you need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Swing and a line drive to right. That's going to be a base hit. And sliding to get to it is the right fielder Tucker rounding third Hernandez. He'll come in to score. Soto's on his way to third and there without a play rounding the bag. As the throw comes into the second baseman Castillo who runs it in towards the mound. It's a single to right center field for Cruz holding it first. Drives in his fourth run of the year. Runners on first and third still with nobody out. Three hits in a row to start the game. It's the Nationals one and the Pirates nothing. Well, the Nats offense on Friday night, seven runs. Uh, it was good to see this. You know, the Nats continued to not get much in the way of extra base hits. Ten hits in the game, eight of which were singles. Uh, the Nats are single and ready to mingle these days. But look, the offense was good on Friday night. Ten hits, six walks. So the Nats did once again draw walks. And the Nats have started to hit with runners in scoring position a bit here. Five of 14 on Friday night. What really jumped out was the production from the top four in the lineup on Friday night. Cesar Hernandez, Juan Soto, Nelson Cruz, and Josh Bell. Those four guys, batters one through four, combined eight of 16 with four walks and six RBI. Cruz and Bell each with three RBI. But I got to tell you, man, I am fascinated by what is going on right now with Cesar Hernandez. He has gotten on base to begin each of the Nats' last Five games. That's crazy. I'd love to know in the history of the Nats, how many times has that ever happened? The leadoff man in his first plate appearance in each of five straight games gets on base. And, you know, not so coincidentally, we're seeing the Nats score some runs in these recent first innings. Friday night, a two-run first. Cesar Hernandez getting things going with a leadoff opposite field single through the left side of the infield. I mean, you know, he's not doing much in the way of extra base hits. He's still not really drawing that many walks. But he is piling up the singles. And every game, you have now this like supreme confidence that Cesar is going to begin things for the Nats by getting on base. And not just getting on base, but scoring runs. The last four days, he has gotten on base and scored in the top of the first to give them a lead. And it's a great thing to see. It's exactly what you want. If you're going to be hitting in front of Juan Soto, Nelson Cruz, and Josh Bell, you better get on base as much as possible. And that's exactly what he's done. It's worked out perfectly. So that's been a nice Nice development for him. The only other leadoff hitter they've had, I can think, who maybe had a streak like this was named Kyle Schwarber. And the difference was, yeah, he was scoring runs. He was driving himself in. That's how he did it. The hottest man on the planet leading off against him, Kyle Schwarber. First pitch, Bellin. Deep right field. Way back. Going. 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 Goodbye. A first pitch fastball off the facing of the third deck down. 
Cruz in the 12th of his career. Yeah, it's really remarkable when you think about this because the Nats in recent years have had kind of a revolving door in terms of that leadoff spot. Not that they haven't had someone like a Trey Turner was capable of it, but we've seen various guys get used in that role. You know, we all kind of wondered going into the season, well, Cesar Hernandez, Davies so committed to him. We'll see how he continues to do, but hard to complain right now with what he is doing. Juan Soto on Friday night got on base four times, two for three with two singles and two walks. Nelson Cruz on Friday night, two for four with two singles, a walk, and three RBI. And what jumped out to me with Cruz on Friday night, all four of his plate appearances saw him down 0-2 or 1-2, but do something productive. Cruz in the Nats, two-run first, opposite field, RBI single to right field on an 0-2 pitch for a 1-0 Nats lead. Cruz in the Nats, one-run second, a two-out RBI single on a 1-2 pitch on a well-hit grounder that went off the Pirates' third baseman, Key Brian Hayes for a 3 nothing Nats lead. Cruz in the Nats one run fourth, a one-out RBI ground out on a 1-2 pitch for a 4-2 Nats lead. Cruz in the Nats two run six, one-out seven pitch walk off having been down 1-2. You know, again, not hitting for a lot of power. We know that that will come, but you know, that cliche of professional hitter, you do see that with Nelson Cruz. Like he will go the opposite way. He will work account. And uh, we saw him do that on Friday night. Yeah, it, that's a case of a guy understanding situational hitting. Hey, there's runners in scoring position. I just need to get them in somehow. And uh, he did a really good job of that. And I think the power is going to be there. You know, we all know in the end that's going to be there. He's hit, he's still hitting balls on the ground a lot, kind of like Soto last year, to be honest. I think he just needs to get the timing down a little bit, maybe start a little sooner. Next thing you know, he's going to be elevating. And as the weather heats up, I think he'll start doing that. So I'm not too worried about that. But you know, Soto gets on base four times, first time this year that he's done that. Remember, he did it 26 times last year, a number that has only been topped in history by a couple guys named Babe Ruth and Barry Bonds, who are pretty good. And yet it was like such a quiet get on base four times night. We didn't even really think about it, not because it was not important to the team, but we just kind of come to expect this from him. Two singles and two walks. Never gives away an at-bat. It's a great sign that he's already doing that. And then to have Cruz and then Josh Bell with a couple of big hits. Who Also, good situational hitting from Bell. Both of his hits, both of them driving in runs, were opposite field against the shift. If you get a pitch down in the park, go for it. If not, take what they give you. They're going to give you the whole left side of the infield. Just put it right through that hole. Take it. Take your RBI. And those were some good professional at-bats from all the top four guys in their lineup tonight. Yeah, Josh Bell, the ex-Pirate, doing well on Friday night at the Pirates. Two of four, two singles, and a walk. Has any Nat been better so far this season than Josh Bell? Nine games into the season, he's batting three thirty-three, as a four fifty on base percentage. He's slugging five forty-five. He's been outstanding offensively for the Nats. In terms of you know other guys who stood out on Friday night, uh, it was a rough game for K. Bert Ruiz. Zero for five, he left. Six men on base. We did once again see Yadiel Hernandez out there as a starting outfielder for the Nats. He was a starting left fielder, one for three with a double and a walk. So Yadiel continues to hit. But boy, it's hard not to notice this. I mean, forget about Victor Robles not being the everyday center fielder. I mean, is Victor now just a bench player for the Nats? I mean, the Nats on Friday put D. Strange Gordon on the injured list. We can get to that in a bit. But you once again had Lane Thomas as a starting center fielder and Yadiel Hernandez as a starting left fielder. Uh, It feels like we're seeing less and less of Victor right now. So if we are to believe Davey Martinez, and I know we discussed the other night how much we should listen to what he says or not, 
Victor's going to be in there on Saturday and on Sunday. Darnell Coles, the hitting coach, wanted to spend two days working with him on this swing. They liked what they saw from him in batting practice on Friday. Now, he did come in for defense late and then wound up getting in that bat in the ninth inning and he grounded out to short. So it wasn't like it was a whole lot to work on there. But Davey is saying we're going to see him the next two days that this was a calculated decision to let him work on some things that they've been working on. But he's now 0 for 16, I think, on the season. You know, Yadiel Hernandez is hitting the ball well and... At some point, you have to say, well, does he give us our best chance? Uh, Lane Thomas, who had been struggling at times, had an RBI double in this game. It's an interesting question that's coming to a head. I don't think Victor's out altogether, but I would say that if he really is in the lineup on Saturday and Sunday, he needs to make the most of that. He needs to show them something in those two games to suggest that he has turned a corner and figured something out. Because if he doesn't, and now we get back to the homestand starting Monday, and Yadiel's still hitting, and maybe Lane's starting to hit, We haven't seen Donovan Casey yet, who was called up today. There are a lot of alternative options for Davey if he wants to go there. And one of these days, Victor Robles is going to have to prove that he should be out there on a regular basis. If you're him, you don't want to give Davey reason not to play him. And right now he's bordering on that. Yeah, and it is interesting with Yadiel and Lane, because like we said, Yadiel is hitting. I mean, Yadiel is batting 400 now on the season, and Lane did have a big hit on Friday night. Uh, he had in the Nats one run fifth, a two out RBI double to the left center field gap for a 5-2 Nats lead. Now, he did kind of bizarrely get thrown out by a mile at third base for the third out. He was trying to advance on a swinging strike that got away from the Pirates catcher. Andrew Knapp ended up being gunned down. But yeah, I mean, if Lane Thomas gets going, well, now you have two outfielders who are hitting ahead of uh, Victor Robles, who obviously has not been hitting so far. So you mentioned Donovan Casey. I brought up the D. Strange Gordon situation. So just to catch everybody up, D. Strange Gordon was supposed to be the at starting center fielder in game one of the series on Thursday evening. It was a late scratch due to illness. If you watch Davey Martinez's postgame session with reporters, he was uh, kind of vague, almost cryptic about what happened. D. Strange Gordon was ill. And the Nats on Friday put D. Strange Gordon on the injured list and recalled outfielder Donovan Casey from AAA Rochester. Now, look, I mean, I don't think you have to be Sherlock Holmes to figure out what may be going on here with D. Strange Gordon. I don't know why the Nats can't just come out and say what's happening here. But normally, when a guy goes on an injured list, the Nats will specify the injured list, right? 10-day injured list, 60-day injured list. Last year, there was a COVID-19 injured list. Usually, when a guy went on it, the Nats would just say the guy was going on the injured list. So by that deduction, Is D. Strange Gordon on the COVID-19 injured list? Is there still a COVID-19 injured list for this season? There is. And the reason that I think it's pretty safe to say that that's what's happened here is that when you go on the COVID IL, you do not count against the 40-man roster. The Nationals made another 40-man roster move. On Friday, they claimed an outfielder off waivers from the Blue Jays, Joshua Palacios. Their 40-man roster was full. So the only way to clear a spot is if D. Strange Gordon is no longer on the 40-man roster. And unless he's on the 60-day IL, which he's not because he's not injured, that's the only way it can happen. So, yes, read between the lines. There are privacy issues here. I think it has to do with the player has to consent to that being publicly told by the team. But all we have to do is look at how they handled these the last two years and to understand that this is what has happened now. Supposedly, he's feeling better. He's still at the hotel. You know, you hope that nothing's serious and that he gets by it. I will also say there were three players in the clubhouse pregame on Friday wearing masks. 
on their faces. And that is one of the uh, protocols right now that if you are vaccinated and you're deemed a close contact of someone who tests positive, then you have to mask for, I believe, five days. So would not be surprised if those people maybe sat on the plane near the strange Gordon on the flight up from Atlanta. Again, we're interpreting a lot here, but I think it's pretty safe to say that we know what's going on. We hope that he's fine, that he's back soon. But that would explain why the 40-man roster spot opened up and everything else that went on on Friday. Yeah. What a difference, though, a year makes, right? Because last year, early in the season, in fact, the Nats' start of the season was delayed because of guys getting COVID. Here we have in the early portion of the season, a guy pretty clearly getting it. And, you know, it's not like great or anything, but it's not like it's shutting down the season or, you know, forcing this widespread panic or anything like that. So uh, that's interesting. So this guy, Donovan Casey, uh, Donovan Casey, one of the four prospects who the Nats got back from the Dodgers in the trade package for Max Scherzer and Trey Turner last July 30th. You know, Casey was obviously only in the Nats organization for a little while last year, ended up being named the Nats 2021 Minor League Defensive Player of the Year. Uh, If you go by the MLB Pipeline rankings, uh, he is the Nats' number 19 prospect. He's an older prospect. This season is his age 26 season. Do you think we'll be seeing any of Donovan Casey this weekend? At some point, yeah. I mean, I don't think he's being brought up here because he's going to play every day, anything like that. But they they want to get a look at him. They wouldn't have called him up if they didn't think so. He's a good athlete. He's a kind of a big guy, long arms and legs. He can play all three outfield positions. So that's good. Uh, He was off to a pretty good start at Rochester. I think it's two doubles, two triples and a homer so far in just six games. So I think they're going to try to find the right spot for him and see if they can, uh, you know, find a, a way to do that. But certainly the way Robles has struggled that, you know, maybe there is an opportunity to get him in there at some point. I don't know that in the long run he profiles as a an everyday outfielder. You know, maybe he will, but he's already 26, just finally making his major league debut. So I would think long term is maybe more of like a fourth outfielder type, but That's kind of what we thought Lane Thomas was, and he proved that maybe he is more than that, at least so far he has. So you never know. We'll get a look at him here at some point. He was really excited to get the call. He wasn't necessarily expecting it this soon. He said he was uh, in a meeting with the team in Rochester on Thursday afternoon, and Matt LeCroy, the manager, announces to everybody, hey, we just had a player called up. And Donovan says he just assumes it's a pitcher. And next thing you know, LeCroy is announcing his name, and he almost like had to pause and like, comprehend that for a second before I realized like, oh no, wait, that's me. I'm coming up. Uh, So pretty cool thing for him. And, you know, pretty cool to say that now three of the four prospects they acquired from the Dodgers for Trey Turner and Max Scherzer are on the big league roster, Cabert Ruiz, Josiah Gray, and Donovan Casey, and maybe Gerardo Carrillo, we will see here at some point as well. Yeah. I mean, that's obviously a function of a lot of things, but you know, the Nats got prospects from the Dodgers who obviously were not years away like they got guys who were like right on the doorstep if not you know like in the case of Josiah Gray had already uh, debuted in fact Ruiz had debuted already too at the major league level when the Nats got him last year so yeah three of the four who are on the Nats right now that's kind of crazy you tell us what you think you can hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat you can email the podcast Nats chat podcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to become a sponsor of the Nats Chat Podcast, hit up Tim Shovers and uh, see what we can do for you. We got this email from another Tim. It's a question for you, Mark. He says, my question is how the universal designated hitter affects various aspects of the off the field game. For example, is the job of the equipment staff much easier 
because the staff doesn't need to take bats and batting helmets for pitchers on road trips. Do the position players get more batting practice now that pitchers no longer need the reps? Interesting question. Uh, Tim is obviously a deep thinker thinking about these things. Uh, Have you noticed any differences with the universal DH? (laughs) So that is not one I had considered previously, but it is a good, interesting question there. Certainly, it's a lot less equipment than to not have to have the uh, pitcher's batting helmets, although typically they would only have helmets for the starters. I feel like the relievers, if they ever had to take an at-bat, might just grab someone else's and maybe not have one designated for them since they didn't do a lot. As far as BP goes, the way they would typically do it would be whoever that night's starter was would take an early round of BP in the afternoon. Uh, but that would be it. You wouldn't have all of them. Every once in a while, you'd, you'd want to get, you know, like a let them all get their swings. But that would be earlier in the afternoon. So the true what we call BP, when fans are in the park in the, you know, like 4.30 to 5 o'clock range, those are the standard hitting groups of the position players. And it's usually three groups. The first two are the guys who are in the lineup that night. And then the third group are the bench players. So if pitchers hit, it's usually much earlier in the afternoon, not with them. So I don't think this has necessarily changed anything in terms of it's not like there's now more BP for the position players. I think they already had what they were going to do all along. It might just mean a little bit of less early work and certainly a lot fewer helmets for Mike Wallace and the uh, clubhouse crew to have to worry about bringing with them all over the country. One more thing. Uh, so how about the fact that Alcides Escobar on Friday night in the Nats one run second draws a leadoff four pitch walk and steals a base, the first stolen base for the Nats? You know, not something that probably most people were monitoring, but, you know, it's not until game number nine in the season that we see a stolen base for a Nat. And, you know, I guess now that Trey Turner is not here and stealing bases is something that's fading for a lot of different reasons, including analytics. I guess we shouldn't be shocked by that. That is kind of quirky, though. It took nine games into the season for the Nats to register a stolen base. Well, and also think about another reason why, because Victor Robles has not been on base (laughs) to attempt it. He'd be the other one to do it. Here's the crazy thing. They were 0 for 2 on attempts prior to this. You know who the two guys were to attempt a stolen base prior to Alcides Escobar? I know Josh Bell was one. Yes, he was. The other one, and I don't even remember this. I got to go back and find it. Yadiel Hernandez. I don't remember how that came about. I must have blocked that one from my memory already. Who would have thought the first two stolen bases of the season were attempted by Josh Bell and Yadiel Hernandez? That's crazy. That's cr- Maybe that's why the Nats had zero stolen bases <laughs> up until game nine on the season. All Nationals highlights on Nats Chatter, courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. We continue to solicit for your tales of your first major league games that you attended on the next installment of the Nats Chat podcast. Uh, barring something crazy, Mark and I will be telling our tales of our first major league games that we attended. But uh, you tell us yours. You can email us, natschatpodcast at gmail.com, and you can email both in written form and in voice memo form. Record yourself in your smartphone and uh, email the file to us. So don't forget, you can get yourself a Nats Chat podcast t-shirt by going to natschatpodcast.square.site. That's natschatpodcast.square.site. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. And we leave you with Paul from Ontario with his story of his first major league game. Hey, Nats Chat. This is Paul Frampton from Lindsay, Ontario, Canada, back with another voice memo, this time about my first ever ball game, which was between the Toronto Blue Jays and the Seattle Mariners. 
we got to the game early enough that we could watch the Mariners practice. My older brother, myself, and a couple other kids in the section stood as close to the players as we could, hoping to get a ball. While all the other kids and my brother stood there with their hand out, just waiting, I stood there with my arms crossed. As the Mariners finished their practice, one of the players, an outfielder, whose name I forget at this point, came running over, grabbed me by the hand, and put a ball in my hand. Needless to say, I was thrilled and ran back to my parents. The story takes a turn after the game, though. As we were headed home and my father was listening to the post-game chat on the radio, they announced that the very player who had handed me the ball had been traded by the Seattle Mariners. My father locked eyes with me in the rearview mirror and exclaimed, he must have been traded for giving you that ball. I, of course, believed it because I was a gullible little child. And I believed that for well over a year until we attended another baseball game. And I refused to go near any of the players because I didn't want to get any of them traded. Now that I'm 40 years old and I look back on it, it was a hilarious prank that my father pulled and I completely fell for it. And that was my first ever ball game. With pinch batter Frank Keller at bat, Robinson dashes to the plate. It's close, and umpire Summers calls him safe on the daring maneuver. But Yogi Berra doesn't think so. And the fans will never forget the sight of Jackie Robinson preparing for the plate on his daring steal.